tongue. James wrote about it, especially in James 3. And then in the Colossian letter, the Apostle Paul reminded us that our speech at Colossians 4, verse 6, should always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The Lord himself at Matthew chapter 12 issued some very sobering words about our words when he said, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so we do have several sobering passages on how sober we should be in tasting our words before we speak them. As we continue our sermon tonight, our lesson series tonight on the Sermon on the Mount, we have more sobering words about the use of words, specifically in reference to the matter of oaths, where we are ready for the section where Jesus forbids certain oaths in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. This is the section of the Great Sermon on the Mount where he is referring to the traditions many times of the scribes and Pharisees as they had, had perverted the law of Moses. And in this case, they had perverted the teaching of the law concerning oaths. Jesus says, beginning in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, as Jesus addresses this matter, he is addressing a situation that had evolved over time among the Jews where they were making distinctions about their oaths and whether or not the name of God was involved versus something else by which they swore or made a vow. And the, the little bit of trickery, if you will, that they had injected into the matter was that certain oaths, unless the name of God was solemnly called for in that oath, they really were not bound to keep that oath. And so they were swearing by the temple and by the gold of the temple and by the hair of their head and these other things that would, in effect, negate the validity of the oath, which, in effect, would allow them to lie, to simply engage in falsehoods and trickery. And it had become a very prevalent practice among the Jews. But it is not the case here that Jesus was condemning all oaths, even those under the law of Moses, because there was a solemn oath that one could take under the law of Moses. And there are passages that clearly affirm that. So therefore, we know that Jesus was not eliminating a proper oath that was taken 
in the name of the Lord. And for example, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, at verse 13, there's a very clear admonition that is given as a part of the law of Moses. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. And so obviously not all proper oaths using the name of God were prohibited. And then in Leviticus 19 and verse 12, there's a passage that is relevant to this matter. Where Moses writes, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, this is God through the prophet Moses, through the mediator, you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And of course, when we go all the way back to the giving of the law itself, that is, the Ten Commandments at Exodus 20 and verse 7, the admonition there in that commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Ninth Commandment is relevant to this matter as well. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so lying had become very prevalent and it had become prevalent under the guise at times of oaths that were not necessarily binding unless they were specific oaths taken in a solemn way invoking the name of God. And so Jesus was addressing the abuse of the matter of oath-taking as he had addressed the abuses in regard to other matters in this section particularly of the Sermon on the Mount. Later on in the Gospel according to Matthew, there is a, a passage that is relevant also to this study as Jesus confronts the Pharisees there in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 16, and this gives us further insight into the context in which this prohibition that Jesus gives here in the Sermon on the Mount is made. There he says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Then in verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. That was the kind of trickery in which they were involved. That was the kind of distinction they were making saying, if you swear by the temple, it's nothing, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, you've got to keep that one. Well, where in the law of Moses was such a distinction ever given? There was no distinction. He goes on, fools and blind. He doesn't mince words, does he? For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, is, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. That was another Example of the distinction that they were making in their taking of oaths. And again he says, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. And then he says, therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. He's saying, in effect, you cannot make a distinction by any of the things that you're seeking to make a distinction in as you swear by the gold of the temple versus the temple itself. All of it gets back to God. 
It all belongs to God. It all leads us back to God. And so God recognizes, nor does he allow, God does not recognize nor allow that kind of distinction. So as we look at particularly Matthew uh, 23 and those verses we read, particularly from 16 through 22, we get insight as to what Jesus is condemning here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Did Jesus, did Jesus ever agree to or affirm an oath of any kind himself? Well, the answer is yes. And so obviously, again, we can see that he was not, he was not condemning all oaths. As he stood uh, before the high priest in his uh, trial process, before uh, his crucifixion, uh, he was told by the high priest, I adjure thee by the living God. Tell us whether or not, indeed, you are the Son of God. And so, in effect, the high priest called upon him uh, in affirmation of an oath to affirm that he is the Christ. And indeed, Jesus did that. That's at Matthew chapter 26. Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath as the New King James renders it, by the living God. This is verse 63 of Matthew 26. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Did Jesus then say to him, you have no business asking me to affirm an oath? No. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. It is as you, sa as you said. And so we do see from these passages that we've looked at that there were oaths that were enjoined upon uh, those under the law of Moses. There were oaths that uh, we can read about from the pen of the Apostle Paul as he called God to witness at various times to the truthfulness of uh, a statement that he was making. And what about, what about God himself? What about God himself? In Hebrews uh, chapter 6, in verse 13, to gain the context. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, God in an oath, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And so we can clearly see that in this context in which Jesus forbids oaths, he was forbidding the abuse of oaths that the Jews for a long time had practiced and were using trickery and hypocrisy to supposedly give someone an oath and yet it's like maybe kids used to do and say, well, yeah, I know I said that, but I had my fingers crossed. I had my fingers crossed. That was the kind of activity in which they were involved. It was hypocrisy. It was basically... Uh, a license to lie as they viewed it. And Jesus 
clearly condemns it here. And so he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now let's go to another passage that clearly ties into this passage, and that's from the pen of James. In James chapter 5 and verse 12, and obviously James, writing by inspiration, clearly though had in mind the Lord's admonition that we've looked at here in Matthew chapter 5. At verse 12 of his epistle in chapter 5, he says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so clearly there is an obvious similarity, almost a parallel, between what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and what James writes here in James 5 and verse 12. And again, in both cases, both Jesus and James were condemning the abuse of the oath-taking that was so prevalent among those of Jesus' time, and yes, even at the time James wrote his epistle. Years later, obviously, this was still something that he felt the need to address. Now, are all oaths, even in the New Testament period, even in today's time, while we have certainly uh, clearly affirmed and uh, proved that, that oath-taking under the old law, the proper kind of oath-taking, was not uh, a violation of that law, what about under the new? Is Jesus condemning all oaths? No, I don't believe so. Is James even, sometime later writing by inspiration, condemning all oaths? I believe not, but is simply saying, simply saying, one is not to abuse what is clearly set forth in Scripture as being permissible, and that is the proper, solemn kind of oath by which God is called to witness to the truth of something. But, but he adds, as did the Lord, why not under the Christian dispensation, why not let your yes be yes and your no, no? Now, someone may be, say, may be thinking, well, but he says, James does, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Would not any other oath include uh, the oath that one might take as one is about to uh, take the witness stand in a, in a trial? And I recognize, certainly, that under our system, as far as I know, it's still the case, that if one has a conscientious objection about uh, swearing under oath to tell the truth, that they will allow an affirmation, as it is called, that you affirm to tell the truth. But you affirm to tell the truth just as you swear to tell the truth under threat of perjury and the punishment that comes from perjury. And whether you swear to tell the truth or you affirm to tell the truth, if you lie, they're going to get you uh, either way. And so you're not going to get out of that, obviously, and no one should want to. And so it is the same difference, as the expression goes, whether you affirm or whether you swear to tell the truth. I don't believe that the Scriptures would condemn the swearing under oath to tell the truth in a court of law, but I would certainly respect anyone's conscience on the matter who would choose rather to affirm. And what James says here about any other oath, I don't believe refers to any other oath of every kind including 
taking the witness stand, but any other oath of the kind that he is writing about here. In other words, these frivolous, uh, trickery uh, kind of oaths that the Jews were involved in. And why would we conclude that? Well, it's interesting that the word that he uses that's translated any other, the word other there is the word that means any other of the same kind. But there's another word that means any other of every kind or a different kind. He doesn't use that word when he says any other oath. He uses the word that means any other of the same kind, not any other of a different kind. Which leads us to the conclusion that he's talking about a specific kind of oath. And it's that kind of oath that we should avoid. But it is certainly important to see the conclusion of both the words of Jesus and the words of James. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And do not inject in your speech flippant expressions or flippant phrases that in effect amount to mild, if not absolute, uh, or obvious oaths, but mild oaths. You may remember that when we studied the epistle of James, and we got to this verse, as I recall, in James 5.12, we brought out some comments from the late and lamented Guy in Woods, who made some points about euphemisms and about how we can throw in words like gosh or gee or gee whiz or even my goodness, and that is a euphemism for, quote, my God. It just bothers me terribly to hear so much on television these days where, as Tom Holland once said, as I mentioned in one of his segments on GBN, it seems that so many people think that God's first name today is Oh My, because you hear it and you hear it and you hear it over and over and over again. That's a violation of the very thing we are talking about here, because you're basically calling God into an oath-type taking situation or a flippant use of the name of God that God does not allow. He wants us to be very solemn and very reverent when it comes to the use of his name. And I realize that there are expressions that are used innocently and people don't even think about them many times. But when someone says, gee, that is a shortened euphemistic form of Jesus. And that's what you are saying when you say that, in effect. And even secular sources will affirm that. Go to the dictionary and look up G. Go to the dictionary and look up goodness. And go to the dictionary and look up various words that uh, have been used uh, innocently uh, by Christians for years and years. But the derivation of those words, among those definitions, you will find a mild euphemistic form for the name of God. And so it brings home the importance of just saying yes or no. It brings home the importance, as, John and, I mean, as James and Jesus both tell us, of letting your yes be yes and your no, no. 
Have you ever heard the expression, and I'm sure you have, there was a time when a man's word was his bond? Of course we've heard that expression. And it is quite likely the case that there was a time when that was more the case than it is now, tragically. Because we live in a time, and history does repeat itself, I suppose, that is very much like the time that prompted Jesus to to express these words in the Sermon on the Mount and that prompted James to write the words he did. Lying had become so prevalent among the Jews and these false trick, trick kind of oaths and so forth. And certainly we live in a time where lying is uh, more prevalent than we would like to think and where it is not the case as it once was perhaps that a man's word is his bond. I read just today some words from... David Sane, very fine gospel preacher, who was addressing this very thing about yes and no. And he said, you know, if I went to a banker and I said, I'd like to get a loan, he said, I know that you would think it'd be unusual for a preacher, my being a preacher, that I would ever need to get a loan. But he said, sometimes I might need to. If I went to, if I went to the bank to get a loan and uh, he asked me for collateral and I told him I don't need collateral, I'm a Christian, then the banker would likely say to me, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that you're a Christian, but I have several Christians here uh, whose loans are, uh, are no good or in de- who are uh, overdue and they haven't paid them. And then David said, well, I might say, well, yes, but I'm a gospel preacher. I'm a preacher. And he would say, well, I appreciate that. The banker said, I appreciate that, but I also have several preachers here who, whose loans are overdue. He said, that's sad but true, isn't it? That is a reality. That does happen. And yet, it shouldn't be the case where a child of God is concerned because we should be people of our word. And our words need to be chosen carefully and our words need to express at all times that we are children of God. Oh, yes, this passage in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount and so many others remind us of how important it is for us to be people of our word and to weigh our words so that our words truly are words that uplift and edify rather than words that discourage and destroy. Tonight there are words we'd like to hear from you if you're not a child of God. Those words are the confession that you believe that, you, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Preceded by that confession needs to be a strong belief that Jesus is the Christ. And then repentance of sin, that is a change of mind that leads you to change your life. Then that confession. But then beyond that confession, there is a final step that is absolutely essential It's not just your words that will save you, but your actions following that sweet confession. And that action is the action of being buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. For Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you haven't done those things to become a child of God, we plead with you to do that tonight. And if you need to come home as a child who has wandered, who has sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church, come home tonight in repentance. As we stand to sing to encourage you, will you come?